Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Thank you. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. We're back with our first episode of 2022. Omicron has been running rampant throughout the world. It's been a busy month away from the podcast for me. The PRISM meeting is now underway. Unfortunately, I am under work-related travel restrictions, so I am unable to join my colleagues in person. But I was fortunate enough to grab a few from our concussion research interest group to discuss some recent research studies in the world of concussion. It's time for another research review with two of my widely respected colleagues in pediatric sports medicine. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. My two colleagues today are Dr. Tamara McLeod and Dr. David Howell. Dr. McLeod is the Athletic Training Programs Director, Professor of Athletic Training, Research Professor in the School of Osteopathic Medicine in Arizona, and the John P. Wood Endowed Chair for Sports Medicine at A.T. Still University in Mesa, Arizona. Dr. McLeod completed her Doctor of Philosophy degree in education with an emphasis in sports medicine from the University of Virginia. She was the founding director of the Athletic Training Practice-Based Research Network, and her research has focused on the pediatric athlete with respect to sports-related concussion. Dr. McLeod has been a contributing author for numerous NATA position statements, serves on multiple editorial boards, and has been frequently published. Dr. Howell is the lead researcher at Children's Hospital Colorado Sports Medicine. He is an athletic trainer and received his PhD in 2014 from the University of Oregon and completed a postdoctoral research program at Boston Children's Hospital in 2017. His research investigates the areas of pediatric concussion and human movement analysis and has authored over 100 publications in peer-reviewed journals. Welcome to the podcast, Tamara and David. Thank you. Thanks. Excited to be here. I know. I'm excited that we're getting to do this. Uh, bummed about uh, PRISM, at least for me. I think you guys, are you guys both being able to go? Are you guys going to both be able to be there? I will be there, yes. Unfortunately, I will not be able to attend either. This darn COVID stuff yeah, just drives great. me nuts. It's at least we can connect here. <laughs> yep, yep. And so we'll be making sure that this gets released right when PRISM comes out. So we'll have something for people to listen to either on their travels to PRISM or maybe on their way back or if they have some downtime, they want to listen to something uh, during the conference. But as usual, we have three articles to discuss today, all tackling a slightly different area in the world of concussion. We'll get rolling here with our first article from JAMA Pediatrics, published in September 2021 by Dr. Theonore Macnow and colleagues, titled The Effect of Screen Time on Recovery from Concussion, a Randomized Controlled Trial. So this was something that was great interest to me with somebody who is interested in return to learn, saw it come across my feed. And, and honest, it left me with more questions than answers. And I was a little surprised that there was an accompanied commentary with it basically suggesting we have the definitive answer to the question about screen time. It's just one study, so I'm not that excited about saying we have the definitive answer yet. And I think the messaging was really important with this study, and I don't think it was entirely accurate. And I'll, I'll explain that as I kind of go through my review of this. So I'm going to start by, we'll just dive into the nitty gritty of the article. This was a randomized controlled trial. It looked at patients presenting to the emergency department between the ages of 12 and 25 who met the criteria for concussion through the acute concussion evaluation ED tool. So that's the ACE emergency department tool. And patients were randomized to either a screen time no restriction group or what was described as a screen time abstinent group. And I plan to discuss that description a little bit more later. They completed post-concussive symptom score evaluations and were monitored until they reported a day where the symptom score was three or less. They also did another analysis with symptom scores of six or less and seven or less, as those are other cutoffs that have been reported in the literature for when we've talked about describing a patient as being recovered. And we can talk about those criteria, those cutoffs a little bit later as well. Sleep was evaluated as well as the return to either work or school as appropriate, and also the time to return to exercise. And participants were advised not to return to work or school for the first 48 hours after they were seen in the emergency department. So there was a total of 125 who were randomized, 66 to the screen time permitted group, and 59 to the screen time abstinent group. And there was a total of 47 patients in the screen permitted group and 44 in the screen time abstinent group who were evaluated in the Wilcoxon rank sum test. And that was used to determine the days to recovery. Interestingly, when you look at that as just percentages, about 24% of the patients in each group were lost to follow-up, which it was a pretty large number for a study that only followed patients out 10 days from their presentation. I was a little surprised about the number that they lost. 
about half of the concussions in this study were from sports. Another 20 to 25% were from motor vehicle accidents and the rest were just a hodgepodge of head injuries. What they found is that those in the screen time permitted group had a median time to recovery of eight days. And the screen time abstinent group had a median time to recovery of three and a half days. And they did the similar analysis for the cutoff scores of symptom scores were less than six or seven, and they found similar results. There weren't any differences in patients reporting sleep-related symptoms, light sensitivity, or visual disturbances during the first three days of recovery. And the median time to return to work or school in those that completed the 10-day study was seven days for the screen time permitted group and six days for the screen time abstinent group. The median time to return to exercise was eight days for the screen time permitted group and seven days in the screen time abstinent group. So the key points for this study that the authors reported was that those who abstained from screen time in the first 48 hours of recovery had a statistically significantly shorter time to recovery than those whose screen time was permitted without restrictions, and that the study provides preliminary evidence to support limiting screen time in the acute period after concussion. So where to begin? I had lots of concerns and questions from this study and how conclusive it may be. And so first off, just to get my personal bias out there with return to school and academics, My philosophy is getting kids back to school ASAP, and I take the same approach as what we found with physical activities. When 20 years ago, when I started doing this, it was full cognitive rest, full physical rest. We wouldn't let kids do anything, lock them in the dark room and put the food under the door and not let them come out until they felt back to normal. And we found out that was not good. Fortunately, through a lot of work from John Letty, we found out that in moderation at a level that's not consistently worsening symptoms was beneficial to start physical activity. So now the approach is typically let's let physical activity happen at a, a symptom limited pace. I have the same feeling with academics. I don't know why we need to think of academics being anything different. We don't have a lot of research, unfortunately, to back that up, but I have lots of anecdotal evidence of what I've done over the last 15 years in practice with that approach that I take. And I find that to be something that works well for kids. And granted, yes, school's not going to be perfect, but I do think that they can get through it and we do want them back in that environment as soon as possible. So with that bias in mind, my concerns first and foremost is labeling the group screen time abstinent. That to me is misleading, and I I don't like that as a label because they didn't completely withhold screen use if you looked at actually the details of the studies. In fact, there is the interquartile range of anywhere between 61 and 275 minutes of screen time use with the screen time quote unquote abstinent group with the median time of 130 minutes in that abstinent group. I'd say it would be a screen time reduced group, but I don't think we can actually truly call it abstinent where they weren't using any screens at all. I think that would be better. Interestingly, if you looked at the screen time permitted group, they had a median time of 630 minutes of screen time. That's 10 hours in a day. I can't even imagine 10 hours a day sitting in front of a screen. I mean, granted, probably pandemic time. Yes, where we are, we had to be parked in front of a screen in order to be productive for work and still get things done, maybe. But the 75th percentile range, it was reported 995 minutes. That's 16 and a half hours of screen time in a day. That leaves you seven and a half hours for the rest of your daily life for bathing, eating, sleeping. I, I don't, and that's that, that that's the, the top 25% is that or more. So I was a little surprised of that level there. It, you know, one concern, obviously, with this study, it's self-reported screen time. You know, there is some advantages, obviously, to using things like that lovely little report if you've got an Apple device where, you know, it tells you what your screen time was for the week and you can be disappointed or excited about how much or how little you use. That may have been a better thing or a better tool to use. And maybe some of these patients did use that and, and reference their device, but it wasn't said that they did. So I'm not totally buying that this was truly the best way of assessing screen time or how good that self-reporting is or boy, we got to talk to some of these kids with screen time permitted as far as how much time they're spending total in front of the screen per day. It just, that was blew my mind. I don't know about you guys, but. Yeah, it was definitely a little, a little eye-opening and another consideration, and perhaps you might get to this is, is not all screen time is probably equal and they could be texting a friend, which might have some very different cognitive demands than watching an action movie or something that, you know, has a, a much different element to it as far as, is it being on screen? I'm just bringing this up as a, as a question and uh, cause I don't know this and maybe either of you do, do you guys either, either of you know, if there's any functional MRI studies that have actually looked at just kind of the activation of the brain in various situations of screens, like if someone were to do 
computer task versus watching TV at, at all? Do you are, are you know are you aware of anything? I'm I'm not, but I'd not be curious. Fan. No, so I'm not either. Maybe would, if someone knows, they can send it to us offline and let us know after you hear this episode. I would say, as somebody who's coming up on about 11 hours of Zoom time today, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> do not recommend for concussion recovery. Very cognitively, or try to be cognitively engaged throughout the day. Uh, but a lot of, you know, just the, the world that we're living in is very screen time heavy and it's cognitively draining. And I, you know, I know that there's different theories of why that is, you know, you don't get quite the same nonverbal cues. And I imagine that might be part of the thing that we're, we're observing here, like you said, during the pandemic. I think the other thing to consider when, when you're talking about the screen time permitted versus screen time as SNCC group. I believe what the authors did here was a, an attempt to treat analysis. They described what the groups are and they said, okay, we're going to treat the groups as how we recommended it. Mm -hmm. And what we find both in this work, but in a lot of our exercise work or other things is kids, especially adolescents, as you probably both know, don't listen to what you say. So uh, mm -hmm. there's, there's a number of studies we, we've published one and, and, and others that have recommended exercise specific exercise volumes to people. And the result then ends up being that the people that got the recommendation were exactly the same as far as exercise volume as people that did not get a recommendation. Mm -hmm. And so I, I do think that that's something to consider when we're describing the groups and following them is the compliance aspect that, you know, the gold standard for an RCT like this would be to treat the groups as prescribed an intent to treat analysis, because there are some other psychological effects that, that may be at play for being assigned from one group to the other. And then the self-reported thing, I think, is a good point. And, and I'm going to draw another parallel to physical activity. You know, I think that we have some tools to use to track physical activity or to track, in this case, cognitive activity or screen time. But the challenge is, how do you get that consistent across a large cohort of people? You know, you have people yeah. with different phones, um, and that just tracks phones. So how do you interface between phones and a TV and a computer screen and an iPad and whatever other devices people are on right now? I think that this just gets to the challenge of understanding this this question, it's really complex. And so self-reported is maybe a good first step, but I agree with you that it's, it's certainly a limitation as with a lot of the concussion research. And that was one of the things that the authors brought up too, which I think is, a, is an important point is we don't know the differences between types of screens too. It may be very different if you're looking at an LED versus a plasma screen versus a cathode ray tube screen from old TV. Uh, you know, if, if that you still have one of those sitting around in your house that you're watching TV off of. And, you know, when we talk about, you know, kids these days and they're sitting and they're looking and watching their YouTube videos on their phone. I mean, I, I just picture my kids where, you know, they're doing something on the computer and then they got their little screen sitting next to them that they've got a video going on at the same time. They're dual tasking there with something. And, and again, it, it's is one of those screens worse than the other. And I always kind of picture the, the eye strain issue here too, that the smaller screen may be more of a trouble for them. Again, I don't have any science or data to back that up, but, but I do think that probably that is a bigger issue, especially with some of the kids that we have a lot of ocular motor dysfunction, trying to focus on something really small for font size or even kind of picture size compared to something that's much larger, that may be a lot easier for them certainly lends itself to further research as far as is there a specific type of screen that may be more irritating to, to these kids. You know, the second part that, that I, I didn't understand in the findings is that the screen time abstinent patients were considered recovered by the study definition after three and a half days, but they didn't return to work or school until six days and exercise by seven days. The screen time permitted group was only a day longer for each of those two, for those two outcome measures. That was one I had a hard time wrapping my head around is just, all right, we're calling them fully recovered, but they still stayed out of school for another two and a half days or out of work for another two and a half days if it was someone in the workplace. So that that part, I guess I, I didn't really understand when you're going to call that person recovered because, and that's also a little different than, well, obviously, you know, this study was started in 2018 and ended right before the pandemic. It's not like the recommendations for exercise and restricting that were different than what we do now. I mean, it's probably more widespread of encouraging exercise earlier. I was a little surprised that it was it was that far off, but also, like I said, surprised when we call them recovered, but still they stayed out of work or, or school for another two and a half days. That part didn't make sense. So I couldn't, I couldn't correlate those two. Yeah. I would, I would add that, that you are very much representative of a specialist in this area too. You know, I, I do think that we 
want people to exercise early. And I think that those of us in this world certainly know that, but these are kids that are, you know, presented to an emergency department and, you know, they get a recommendation and, and those physicians essentially lose contact with them. They're oftentimes referred to their primary care provider or somebody like that, or any other healthcare specialty, or maybe not even, maybe they won't follow up with anybody because only, I think you said only half of them were athletes. They can sit out and and you know take a couple of days extra off of school. I, I just think that this cohort, this sample, it, it, it's hard to generalize across. This is another problem or difficulty in the research of trying to understand how the findings, you know, in the setting that you're in, Mark, or or you know that, that some of the colleagues that I have here at Children's Colorado in the primary care sports medicine setting see a lot of concussions, give a lot of treatment advice, things like that. But, you know, for the non-athlete that goes to the emergency room and leaves, enters a study, what resources do they have? Maybe they don't have an athletic trainer at their high school that they can go to. And, and obviously I'm speaking of much larger issues, but I think that the, a lot of that is kind of baked into the signal here. Oftentimes when we see that discrepancy of exercise initiation after symptom resolution, we think, my gosh, it's it's 2022. How is this possible? But at the same time, you know, I think that we see kids come in much later than that, that haven't even begun exercising. Sure. And I think that's just a, a more challenging, bigger picture concept, obviously, in this study. <laughs> and I think the other thing, too, there is I think we all all of us are aware and most of the people who deal with concussions at a, as a specialty level, if you look because they all were provided standard discharge instructions from the ER. If we know that looking at most ER discharge instructions for closed head injuries or concussion, they're, they're not up to date and have probably not been updated in the last decade with the recommendations and kind of some of the descriptions on there. So I could certainly see that as being a potential challenge if they're reading those types of things as you should do these things. And so they, they may not have done that. We don't know that for sure, but at least what we know in this, in this study is that these, these, they weren't back to stuff until about a week. Would also just like, you know, to add to that and reiterate, as we all know, that there's a lot of variability because if you look at the interquartile ranges on a lot of those times, they'll range from, you know, four days to greater than 10. We don't necessarily know how much greater than 10. And I think it just gets back to really evaluating each patient individually and making the treatment decisions based off of that. Because, it you know, especially looking at the figure three, those error bars are, are huge. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, I think, show the variability among, you know, the patients within the different groups as to, you know, not everyone is recovering at the same pace. And those individual differences are important to recognize. And we will make sure to have links, as always, to all these research articles we're discussing in our show notes. Now, I can't get into you. I'm going to get you past a paywall, but, uh, <laughs> but at least we'll, we'll have links to the abstracts and the PubMed research part of it. So excellent point. I mean, it, it, there, there is wide variability there, which is also you know, a big limitation of the study, which when we have been doing kind of our multi-center stuff, you know, one of the things that I was curious about how the authors asked them to fill out their post-concussive symptom questionnaire, because we know that can be critical, right? Are you filling it out? as you feel right at that instant, or are you filling it out how you felt over maybe the last 24 hours or the last time you did an assessment? Because that can make a big difference because you may catch them at a great point in the day. You may catch them at a horrible point in the day. When we talk about that with concussion patients also, if they caught them on a weekend, we also know with a lot of our teenagers who aren't in school over the weekend, they may feel a lot better on the weekend when they're not having those cognitive demands. And then they get back into school and they feel crummy again. They like, I had a great day on Saturday and Sunday and Monday I felt bad again. So they use their cutoff as as soon as that first day they reported less than three or less, that was their cutoff as far as you're considered recovered. And they stopped following them after that, as far as what happened with their symptoms. So that's why I worry a little bit about this too. When we say that they're recovered, well, were they fully recovered or did they just have a good day? And then they had some troubles again after that. And that may be some variability of what we see. So I think that was a little bit of a flaw in looking at this study of maybe not following them out for the full 10 days and seeing what happened potentially. And just a few other things, you know, just from being someone who deals a lot with the teenagers and under, I'd love to know how many were truly 18 and under because the the mean age was 17 for both of these groups versus how many were we seeing in the college age and above and the young adults. That could make some difference there as far as what we're seeing. I'd love to know the symptom severity of things such as light sensitivity and visual changes in some of these patients to see if that had some relevance or correlation with how bad they were affected by the screen. You know, I appreciate they use several of the various symptom level cutoffs. I think that was helpful, but practically that always has been kind of a little bit of something for me when I look at this in a clinical setting. I'm like, 
if I have a patient that is seven or less, the research tells me I can consider that person recovered. But if that person came in and their seven is a three of a headache, a three of difficulty concentrating, and one of sensitivity of light, and they didn't have that stuff pre-existing before the concussion, I, I don't know that I can call that patient clinically recovered in my office. But we do that in research when we're looking at these cutoffs here for symptom scores. And I think that becomes a challenge. And I don't know a way around that. I mean, I know what I do in clinic is that I ask these patients is, do you feel 100% back to your normal self, both in and out of school? And that that gets rid of, hey, you know, I have some ADD, so I have some baseline difficulty concentrating, or I have some sleep issues at a baseline. Just do you feel back to your normal self? I, I found that to be a very helpful question. And that's what I use when I'm starting someone back on their return to play progression. But we don't have that question or we don't have that research to say that that's a valid thing. Yes, it's subjective, but so is the symptom score checklist. It's very subjective as well. I don't know there. That's that's where I have a little bit of uh, issue. So, you know, I've, I've ranted long enough. I'd love any other input takes on this study that you guys have as far as your thoughts on this. I got to commend you, Mark. You're, you're really good at coming up with additional research questions for uh, <laughs> groups. I think, I think one of the questions you asked during a panel prism last year has turned into a manuscript that we're, we're developing right now. So, oh. um, you know, I think that, that you've got, uh, you've got a good, good brain for identifying additional things. And, and I agree with that. You know, I think, I think the challenge is always, where do you draw the line and how do you yeah. do that? And everybody's got their way of doing it and we all try our best. You know, I think mm-hmm. what's most important to me is that you're transparent about why you did it whether it's one question or a hundred questions and where that cut point is, I think the international consensus meeting on concussion sport and some of the most controversial topics, I guess, even relate to just like, what is a concussion? Where do you draw the line? You know? Yeah. And so I think that that's what we're seeing here. So I, I think it's a really, really good point and, and a really hard and complex thing to answer in a research study. Yeah. And again, I think in the big picture things, is this going to change my clinical practice? No, probably not as far as that goes. What I think this does probably lend some kind of suggestion to is just supporting what what we are currently recommending is that, hey, take it easy the first couple of days after a concussion. Don't go crazy with your screens. Don't go crazy with your exercise. Just relax. Take it easy for a little bit like we would any other injury in our body. Ideally, yes, you're, you're giving it a little break and just using some common sense there. And then then we listen to our body after that as far as what's okay and what's not okay. And obviously, since this was done as an ER study, I think this this is probably more helpful for the guidance that is given out of the ER as far as supporting their recommendations in the ER setting. It may not be as helpful for us, except if we're evaluating them in the acute setting, like on a sideline or something, and then we're giving advice to a family. I think that could also have some relevance too for, you know, the AT community or team docs that are on a sideline kind of thing. But but you know, again, like you said, I, I think there's more questions that came out of this than than answers for me. Just some things that just didn't kind of correlate, you know, the, the whole, like I said, getting back to stuff. So I, I'd be curious to tease into those patients a little bit more. We're limited by what, what data we collected and only report what we've got. So, but I, 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 I commend them for actually someone actually doing the research on this because we've asked this question for a long time. This is the first time we actually have something that actually talks about screen time that we haven't really had before. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will continue with our research review. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From The Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. In today's world, time is everything. When editing podcasts... You know as well as I do, time flies. But it's not the good kind of time flying. It's the kind of time that eats a hole in your pocket. Reclaim the time you lose when you edit your podcast. Connect with The Editor Core. The Editor Core is a group of seasoned, experienced podcast editors that'll get your editing done and out the door. Use your reclaimed time to make more content. 
Make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. We're back with Doctors McLeod and Dr. Howell as we continue our research review. We'll move on to our second article that Dr. McLeod will lead us through from November 2021. It was published in the Clinical Journal of Sports Medicine from Nicholas Blaney and colleagues, titled The Influence of Sleep Dysfunction on Concussion Assessment Outcomes Among Adolescent Athletes After Concussion and Healthy Controls. And I'll let you take it away. Great. I think we can all recognize that the influence of sleep on athletic performance and injury recovered has been highlighted recently, both in the scientific literature and also I see a lot of tweets about the importance of sleep and nutrition from strength and conditioning coaches and athletic trainers and and sport coaches themselves. I think it's a, a very timely article. This study aimed to assess the influence of sleep dysfunction on concussion outcomes among adolescents. It's been identified that about 30 to 70% of patients with concussion have some kind of sleep dysfunction, and sleep dysfunction can be a risk factor for prolonged recovery. So aiming to understand how sleep interrelates with other aspects of our concussion evaluation can be important from a clinical decision-making standpoint. Clinically, we often assess sleep initially with our graded symptom scale or post-concussion symptom inventory items, but less often we dive deeper to really evaluate how sleep impacts elements of concussion assessment and ultimately recovery of our patients. The purpose of the study was to evaluate differences in clinical outcomes, specifically computerized neurocognitive tests, post-concussion symptom scores, and the VOMS in patients with concussion and matched control with and without subjective complaints of sleep dysfunction. So basically, they enrolled 100 participants between 12 and 20 years of age and split them into four groups. The first group was sport-related concussion with associated sleep dysfunction. The second was concussion only. The third was sleep dysfunction only. And the last was the healthy controls. And the designation of sleep dysfunction was based on participant responses for three items on the post-concussion symptom scale, trouble falling asleep, sleeping more than usual, and or sleeping less than usual. So our healthy control group had scores of zero for all of those symptoms. Other scores were used to assign the participants to their respective group. The outcome measures included the five composite scores of impact, the 22-item PCSS total score, as well as domain or cluster scores, and the seven subtests of the vestibular ocular motor screen. As far as participant demographics, there were no differences on most of the demographic variables except for history of prior concussion, which should not be surprising. Both the sport-related concussion plus sleep dysfunction and the concussion-only groups did have a higher uh, prior history of concussion. With respect to the other outcomes, this is where there are some differences, but not all composites or subdomains have have differences. So I'll highlight some of the the key ones and then I think try to bring it home with more of a, a clinical interpretation of the key findings. With respect to the computerized neurocognitive assessments, the group that had concussion plus sleep dysfunction tended to perform worse on verbal memory, visual memory, and reaction time compared to the sport-related concussion-only group. They also performed worse than the sleep dysfunction only and the controls. Uh, With respect to the VOMS, uh, there were group differences across all of the seven uh, domains of the VOMS, and the group with concussion and sleep dysfunction scored worse on all. The concussion-only group scored worse than controls on all but near-point convergence and vertical VOR. And then lastly, with respect to symptoms, the concussion plus sleep dysfunction group had the highest total symptom score. In the cognitive migraine fatigue domain, they were higher than the sleep dysfunction only, the controls, and the concussion only. In the affective domain, the concussion and sleep dysfunction group was higher than concussion only, sleep dysfunction only, and controls. And the concussion-only group was higher than sleep dysfunction and controls. 
The somatic, we only saw one difference there with the concussion group higher than controls. And then obviously in the sleep domain, we saw some differences there with the concussion plus sleep dysfunction and the higher than the concussion only and the controls, but not different than sleep dysfunction only. And the sleep dysfunction only was higher than the controls. No, that's kind of a mouthful. And it's hard when you have some of these outcomes that have multiple subscales, because as a clinician, if you see significant differences in some but not all, it begs the question, what does that all mean? And so I think some of the key findings uh, clinically that are important is that in general, the group that had concussion plus sleep dysfunction tended to score worse but not always worse than the group with sleep dysfunction only. For example, some of the neurocognitive and symptom scores that we saw in the concussion groups were actually somewhat similar to the sleep dysfunction only group, which I think highlights that you know sleep dysfunction itself without concussion can exacerbate some of the tests on the VOMs, other symptom scores, and perhaps even some neurocognitive assessments. Again, the healthy group with the sleep dysfunctions and athletes with concussion only were actually indistinguishable on the computerized neurocognitive testing as well as as the total symptom score. For all of us that use some of these assessment tools, we really need to consider how we're using them, why we're using the clinical reasoning that we're getting actually from them. And specifically, when I teach our students in our athletic training programs about administering and interpreting neurocognitive assessments, I always tell them to actually look at the self-reported hours of sleep the night before first, because if that is not seven to nine hours, then I think you really need to consider the validity of anything else that's in that report, whether or not you would use that in any clinical decision making. I think it highlights some of the limitations that we see in some of these adjuncts assessments. I think there can also be considerations for baseline assessments for those still using a baseline model that you need to administer when they've had a good night's sleep. You need to review the sleep on your baselines to look for what we'd consider invalid assessments. I'm not sure that a low number of hours of sleep would actually trigger an automated invalid notification in some of the computerized assessments. So that needs to physically be, I think, reviewed by the clinician. Regardless, I think the overall message is sleep issues in and of itself can demonstrate similar dysfunction and deficits on our concussion assessments as concussion. But when we have patients with concussion who have an associated sleep dysfunction, we probably need to manage them a little bit better. We probably need to do a better job with sleep hygiene education and really, I think, teaching them habits of good sleep. In some ways, I think it kind of relates to our, our previous article in that, you know, put down the screens well before you're ready to go to bed. Because I think teens these days don't often have good sleep hygiene in the, in the first place. So I think there's several take-home messages from this study. I think probably what stuck with me the most was that healthy individuals with sleep dysfunction actually performed similar to concussion-only patients on a lot of these outcome measures. We really need to look at our differential diagnosis and think about how we might use some of these adjunct tools to make decisions when it's not always about concussion in and of itself. Awesome. A great summary there. And and I am someone who harps on the sleep and the sleep hygiene with all of my patients when they come in, because we all know how we feel when we have a horrible night's sleep. I mean, we feel crummy. I I would argue to say concussed. And some of this actually kind of lends legitimacy to that description. And that's a key point. Like I love the point you made about you have to keep that in your differential. And that's, that's one of the things that we need to stress is that you can't just have someone fill out a symptom score and fill out the score and look at the number and not look at all this, the other domains that are there and how that can interrelate to the other symptoms. We know how anxiety and depression can affect our symptom scores. We know how sleep obviously can affect our symptom scores. We know how pre-existing medical conditions can affect our symptom scores. I think it's really important to tease those out and we need to treat each of those problems and discuss each of those problems, which obviously lends itself to a much more complicated visit clinically when you're trying to talk about all these individual things and and may get overwhelming for some of the patients. So this is where it's important to have good handouts that summarize those things and how those things can affect things and why we need to keep harping at home and keep asking about it. 
the number of kids I see in my office with concussions who already have pre-existing sleep issues is astounding. And I just know in the back of my head that this is a kid I'm going to be dealing with for a while because I've already got this pre-existing horrible sleep pattern. It's not going to likely get better and I'm not going to fix it in the acute setting. And it's probably, we're probably in for a little bit of a recovery time with this particular individual. But that's just remembering that not everything that we see still may be truly concussion. It may be some other manifestation of something else that's still going on. And we have to consider that, especially in the people with persistent post-concussive symptoms. And I think that might be a good patient population that we might want to try to investigate the sleep dysfunction a little bit further. And perhaps that starts with, and this is you know my own soapbox, a patient report outcome measure for sleep to really get at greater detail because the classifications in this particular study were just based off of three symptoms on the post-concussion symptom scale. So while I think it really highlights the value of sleep and understanding sleep dysfunction, it doesn't get at some of the, the mechanisms mechanisms of it or the functional limitations and impairments that a patient might have related to sleep. Whereas if we understood some of that a little bit better, it might help with with strategies to to either educate and or treat the sleep dysfunction. Yeah. And I, I think it's also good to take a step back historically, again, in this context, and realize that it wasn't too long ago and it's still pervasive in the literature. People are telling acutely concussed patients to be woken up every hour, right? Like I, I still have that conversation with people in the community where they say, wait, you're, you're not supposed to wake up every hour for the first couple of days after your concussion. It's like, no, not if you, you've ruled out the, you know, the, the real red flags. And I think the challenge in the context of concussion that I've experienced, at least from a research perspective, is how do you disentangle the effects of concussion from sleep? Because they overlap so much. What you were saying, Mark, of you have poor night's sleep, you feel concussed. And so if you have had a concussion on top of that and you try to re- understand recovery, what is sleep contributing to that? Is it is it a symptom of a concussion or is it something that's driving symptoms? And I and then what do we do about that information, right? We still have a pretty rudimentary understanding of post-concussion sleep dysfunction physiologically. So what are the mechanisms that are contributing to the sleep dysfunction and how do we fix that? You know, I think you look at any sort of position statement and it says sleep hygiene, sleep hygiene, sleep hygiene. Okay, great. But what does that actually mean to the individual person? And I don't know what you're doing clinically as far as how you recommend this, how you assess it. Is it a one question thing? Is it a full battery of questions? Because sleep is also so multidimensional, right? Is it insomnia? Is it the circadian rhythm that's off? Is your latency or, or the timing of it off? All the, is there sleep apnea happening? Like there, there's all these different things that could be contributing that are really, it's hard to distinguish those with just those three questions. Well, I'll tell you how I, I address sleep, you know, and this is also an important point is when you're looking at your symptom checklist, you have to figure out which one you're using of, if you're using the 22 symptom one, because the one I use only has one question about sleep and it's trouble falling asleep. If you use the impacts domain or one of the neurocognitive tests, it has those three questions. And we have to remember which test we're using and then going from there. When I talk about symptom checklists all the time, I'm like, that is my framework for my clinical interview. And I go off of each one of those points and ask them specifically how each of those is affecting them. A number of four for a headache means nothing to me because I need to know how that's affecting them. So it's a four. So is it a headache all day long? Is it a headache that's there where part of their head hurts? Are there specific triggers that make their headache worse? So those are important things. So we have to do the same thing when we talk about the sleep issues. Number one, were they pre-existing? Number two, what is their normal pattern for going to sleep and when do they wake up? We know that adolescents are already chronically poor with their sleep. They're not getting the eight to nine hours of recommended sleep that they need at their age to be rested and recovered. What have they done after their concussion? You know, what I talk to parents about a lot, and this is what, again, why I'm a big get them back to school and get them into their normal routine is these kids become what I call sleep zombies. They're told to stay home. And so what do they do? They just sleep all day. So then they get out of these, they get into these horrible sleep patterns where now they're super fatigued during the day. They can't fall asleep at night because they've given it so much sleep during the day. So I I give all my patients how to think of sleep as like the the gas tank on a car analogy. So you sleep at night, you're filling up your gas tank, you wake up, gas tank's full, you burn it off through the day, you get to the end of the day, you got an empty tank, you got to sleep again. But if I'm stopping during the day at the gas station and I'm filling up a little bit, I'm not empty at the end of the day. I can't get to sleep. 
Or say when you do get to sleep, well, now you filled up the gas tank a little bit early. So you may wake up throughout the night periodically and you're not getting that deep restful recovery sleep. So I stress a lot about we want a consistent bedtime. We want a consistent wake up time. We want that to be eight to nine hours of adequate sleep at night for you. But you do need to ask about those, you know, is there trouble with sleep? Are they waking up frequently? Do they not feel refreshed the next day? Are they having troubles just getting to sleep? And then you got to ask them about all those things as far as, well, what's going on? What are you doing? And you got the TV on in the background. You got your phone next to you and it's getting lit up because your, your friends at two in the morning can't resist texting you. And those are things you have to tease out, which again, makes for a much longer clinic visit, but you are going to get better assessments on people. And then you can really target those interventions and those discussions you need to make in order to really help that patient. And again, get those coexisting things like David was referring to of, I don't know how to tease out how much of this is sleep and how much is this concussion, but I'm going to work on your sleep and let's hope that that actually improves your symptoms otherwise. And then we know that sleep is your big problem. So let's target those things and let's not just wait and hope that you're going to get better over time and just wait out a concussion like we were doing 15 years ago. Yeah, you know, from a teaching standpoint, with respect to managing different elements of concussion, always educate, try to tackle the sleep issue first, because a lot of the cognitive issues and things like that could be the result of not being able to sleep, not getting enough sleep. And so if they really try to stress that with their patients, then hopefully you kind of break the circle and are able to help to mitigate some of those other issues. If not, at least they're in a regular sleep and now you can start to tackle some of the other deficits as well. And from a kind of bang for your buck perspective, there's no detriment to counseling people on getting better sleep. I think all of us could probably use a counseling session on getting better sleep. And I don't think any of the three of us have, have a concussion right now. So from my perspective, it's, it's actually a, it's a pretty big yield for a, and I don't know, I'm not in the clinics like you are, Mark, but a relatively simple conversation as a starting point, obviously you can unpack other issues from there. But if you assess the and, and there's there seems to be some sort of problem building on that seems like a, a pretty like universally applicable treatment strategy for these people. Again, you get back to adherence, are they going to listen to you? Well, I don't know, but there's nothing you can really do about that. <laughs> yeah. And again, when I talk to the patients about all the interventions we're going to make, we're going to start you with some light exercise. We're going to work on your sleep. We're going to work on your neck because your neck's a problem in this too. There's reason why we're tackling all those things, because those are the things that we know that are going to work to get you feeling better quicker, rather than just, again, waiting on stuff and then hoping for the best. So we're trying to get you better. We're trying to move things along so you can take as much of that advice as you want and work on as much of that as you want. And hopefully that will get you better quicker if you actually do heed that advice. But if you're not, and we're going to have the same conversation two weeks later, uh, you know, I don't know what to tell you at that point. You're still out of activity and you're still feeling crummy. So there is a little bit of method to the madness. And, you know, I do like where we're at now with concussion. I mean, obviously, we all know that there's still much more that we need to figure out with concussions and how to really deal with these the best, assess them the best, treat them the best. But boy, I, I feel in a much better place of having discussions with my patients now than I did at the start of my career. 20 years ago now. And that's a testimony to people like you two who have done a lot of research in these areas that help us out with this. I I like this study because I I like, I have a big interest in the topic of sleep and how that really affects us. And and again, we can talk all about sleep and how that affects athletic performance, everything else. I mean, it's it's a fascinating area. So we'll move on to our last one. So we'll finish up as we've done previously with an article that one of our guests was involved with directly. So this article is from the Journal of Sports and Health Science from March of 2021 from Katie Van Deventer with co-author Dr. David Howell, titled The Diagnostic and Prognostic Utility of the Dual Task Tandem Gait Test for Pediatric Concussion. So David, you're, you're probably the most published, or at least what I've come across in my reviews of dual task gait assessment in concussion. It's honestly, it's not talked about much. We talked about this before we started recording the episode. I, I don't think it's something that we talk about or even have in any consensus guidelines as far as, hey, this is something that we should be looking at or doing. So I think what would be a good start before you delve into the study is talk about what dual task gait assessment actually is, and then let us know what you found. Yeah, thanks. And, and I, you know, the story behind this paper is actually kind of cool. So I, I really like talking about it. So thank you for the opportunity. Way back when I first started doing this, like a decade ago, I was working in a, a motion analysis laboratory. You know, you put the little dots on people and watch them walk and you can measure with really good precision, you know, how much somebody deviates or how they walk or, you know, understand their, their movement patterns. And through that initial work, we kind of started implementing a, a dual task, which was actually taken from the literature that was more in the aging literature as like a fall risk predictor. Your brain has a certain amount of capacity or attention that is able to distribute at any given time. 
And so when it comes to fall risk in, in elderly populations, or in this case, in concussed populations, there seems to be some sort of either reduction or inability to distribute that attention appropriately. Why that is, you know, and, and the theories for that are far, far reaching, and we don't exactly know why. But what we understand is that if you focus on one thing, so you are asked to just walk in a straight line, and all of your mental energy is on that, you can, at least in the context of, let's say, a, a post-concussion evaluation, do that okay. Even if there's some motor problem, uh, some, some neural connection, some discrepancy, something's offline, as, you, as people have said, after a concussion, then you know, your, your ability to walk in a straight line is, is probably okay. But when you ask somebody to do two things at once and, and distribute their attention between both walking and thinking at the same time, you see a reduction in your ability to both walk and think compared to if you were to walk independently and think independently. That's where we started with this. And, and what we initially found was when we asked acutely concussed adolescents to walk and say, the, say a five-letter word and in, in spell a five-letter word in reverse order, say the months in reverse order, or do like a serial seven subtraction task from a from 100. When they were asked to do those two things at once, they slowed down and their gait kind of destabilized. That pointed toward some sort of problem, we'll say. We don't know exactly, some impairment or something like that. And then the challenge becomes, okay, so, so when does that recover? And we followed people out to about two months post-concussion in some of the initial studies. And we found that even though their symptoms got better, that we could still detect some differences. Your ability to walk and think was let's just use gait speed as an example. You have to slow down when you're thinking relative to when you're not thinking and you're walking or compared to a healthy control that, that's doing uh, the same task. So, you know, you, you slow down by 40%. Your buddy over here who doesn't have a concussion only slows down by 15% when you're asked to do the same task. What we kind of took that and said, okay, that's, that's interesting. But back to some of the stuff that we were talking about earlier, the question was always, okay, so what? You know, if I came into your clinic, Mark, and I said, your patient is walking with three and a half millimeters or centimeters of total center mass, medial lateral displacement, like what does that do for you clinically? Like that means nothing. There's no context to those values. We started kind of with that lab-based approach. And then from there, we, we kind of translated into a more clinically useful approach. So using wearable sensors to try to quantify gait speed, like in a sports medicine clinic. And that was with Bill Meehan during my postdoc at Boston Children's Hospital. And then I came to my current position at Children's Hospital Colorado and we were starting to do some of these things in, in some research studies. And I have to credit uh, Dr. Julie Wilson, who's the co-director of the concussion clinic at, at Children's Colorado Hospital. We have discussions all the time. And she said, okay, this is really interesting stuff. It seems like you have some useful data that shows that if you have an adolescent with a concussion doing a dual task, you might get some unique information that you wouldn't have assessed otherwise. What does that actually mean? You know, like in, in, a, in an exam room when it comes to an athlete that thinks that they can go back to return to play. So she started using it kind of in her clinics and, you know, she would have a patient try to do that, like a, a walking test and then have them walk and think at the same time. And then she could turn to the, the patient and the parent and say, Hey, look, this kid can't even walk and think at the same time. How do you expect him to perform on the field? Right? So if we talk about sports, that's not just a dual task. That's, you know, you think about the complexity of any sport move, of where you're at in space versus where your teammates and opponents are, where you're trying to direct the ball. All those things are happening in such fast succession that any sort of small deficit could result in either worse performance or what we've seen with some of these dual task assessments, they're, they're associated with risk of future musculoskeletal injuries. So there's some sort of deficit. We've compared it against a lot of other things. So, you know, you have people do dual task walking tests and their recovery happens at a later time point than symptoms, like I mentioned, but also single task or postural control, you know, just standing there. We even compared it against some, some neurocognitive tests and saw all those things resolved before this kind of two things at once, this dual task concept. Again, long-winded way of getting to where we're at. Dr. Wilson and I kind of schemed up an idea. She said, well, why don't we just roll out some assessment in our clinics uh, for every single patient that comes in? The challenge with that is everything up to that point had been essentially some sort of instrumentation, right? So we can't afford to put a motion capture lab or even a commercially available sensor suite in every single clinic, let alone the processing time and the interpretation and all that kind of stuff. So we looked at some of the other work that was being done in, in the same time frame across the country. And the tandem gait test was one that many other people had found useful. Naturally, this was a kind of an idea that we had that was like, okay, this is feasible. We can do this within the confines of the clinic. You need a three meter strip of tape. We went to, I think Dr. Wilson went to a fabric store and bought like a three, three meter fabric strip 
that we could like reuse for the purposes of this evaluation. We did a training with all of our athletic trainers that were embedded within our clinics, worked alongside of our physicians. And so they were the ones that for the entire calendar year of 2019, luckily we snuck this in before 2020, every single patient that came in got a single and dual task tandem gate evaluation. So back to my kind of original context, and I can kind of summarize the study because I've been a little bit long-winded here, was we wanted to know, I could give these, these research talks, and, and this is why I like talking to clinical audiences, because I would give a research talk and it would be like, neat. You know, you found deficits at a month post-injury. Their symptoms got better before that. Okay, like I still don't know what a 30-second versus a 20-second tandem gait test is. So we wanted to give a little bit of interpretation to that within the context of the patients that we see at a specialty care concussion clinic, you know, within the first 10 days of their concussion. Again, after, after the year-long data collection period, and we're still using it in our clinics now, we've kind of refined it since then. We look back at all the patients and we compare them to a different cohort of healthy controls that we've collected. And then the main thing we wanted to know was, are there differences between these two groups? But number two, as I said, what is the context? What are the cut points for that? And so what we found, I think the most clinically useful information that came out of this study was that at a cut point of, for a single task tandem gait test. So if you have somebody with on a three meter strip of tape, walking heel toe down and back as fast as they can, I think we did three trials and took the average of those three. If they got faster than a 16 second time versus slower than a 16 second time, that was 88% sensitive to detect whether or not they were in the concussion group or the healthy control group. And then we took that same approach with the dual task and found the cut point of 22 seconds differentiated between at an 85% sensitivity differentiated between healthy control and concussed. And again, limitations abound in this study, any sort of clinical chart review, essentially, with some pre-planning ahead has some limitations, but this was a good starting point to at least put some numbers to that. And then we also followed the, the patients that we could that returned for care to see whether or not they developed persistent symptoms and tried to take that same approach. The, the tests were not as prognostic as they are diagnostic, but they still, you know, we did see differences between the groups and we found a high specificity for dual task tandem gait, but a, but a low sensitivity that if you get a really slow dual task tandem gait time initially post concussion, then yeah, it may be that you have a little bit longer road to go with recovery, which can inform some of our, our treatments. And then the last thing that, that I wanted to point out with the study is that we compared it against the modified balance error scoring system. So we did have patients do that simultaneously. And if you look at the kind of the combined sensitivity and specificity measures, the AUC measures, at least for diagnostics, found that both the single and dual task tandem gait were much higher ability to distinguish between the patients with a concussion versus controls than, than the modified best was. So maybe I'll leave it there because I know that we're, we're running up against the hour here. <laughs> we have no limit as far as how long we talk for. Personally, that's okay. No, I think that's, it's great. I, and, and I appreciate what you kind of mentioned as far as what you talked about, as far as, Hey, you know, I present this research and what do we do with that clinically? That, that unfortunately does become a big problem sometimes in concussion is like, all right, I don't know what to do with that information. Like, how is that going to change what I do in clinic? Or is that going to change my recommendations for treatment? Is it going to change my recommendations for guidance for them as far as what expectations are for recovery? So I think talking about these things in a clinical setting, you know, obviously we have to have some of that basic science stuff and figure this stuff out first. And then how can we make it practical? and, And how do we interpret what that is? You know, that's the big problem we've had with with things like the SCAD assessment is for a while they were using a numbered score and then they drop the numbered score and say, well, the number score really doesn't help us very much. So why do we even do it? You know, if we don't have a numbered score, like how do we score it? How do we interpret that? And that's, I think, always been the biggest challenge in utilizing these tools is, well, we have these tools, but what does it mean? Right. Uh, and so I, I think this is great. And I, and I love this. And I, I love the story as far as leading up to this. I think that's, uh, it's always, I, I love it a good origin story uh, <laughs> as far as how something came to be. Yeah. Well, and I, and I think the other, the, the, the piece on that is that, you know, this is one piece of the puzzle, but it, at least, I guess, two things, it, it helps to, at least from a clinical perspective, um, as a healthcare provider, you kind of want to know what the athlete's going to do when they put them out on the field. You might not be there to oversee that. And so while this is not perfect, and I think there's plenty of other way smarter people than me that are working on like sports specific type of dual task assessments, which I think is really exciting. This at least is something that's kind of universal and and can inform that little bit of cognitive motor integration that you want to understand. 
And then the second piece is I, I have had enough conversations with folks that are athletic trainers in high schools that their budget is not such that they can afford things that will be the fancy objective tests, biomarkers, all those kinds of things. So what are some very simple things that we can study and understand, present data on that, that's going to help them at least contextualize what a result might be for something that they can do in their clinic. And I think that this is a good balance of it's not a perfect test because there's a little bit of novelty. There's probably some practice effects that go into it and things like that. But at the same time, the accessibility is a lot higher than, than a lot of the other, even the, the computerized neurocognitive assessments, for example. So, so I do think that there's some balance there, you know, I, I, and I, I like it because that's where the data has led me. I'm, I'm not, I promise I'm not like making money off the tandem gate test or anything like that. The better tools that we have, the more objectivity, I think the, the better off that we are uh, as healthcare providers administering care for those with concussions. I really yeah. like your conversation about Dr. Wilson using it almost as an education piece with parents. And I think that can be critical. I think it's important with coaches as well. If you look at, at even other elements like reaction time and explaining that they're still having deficits in these sport-specific maneuvers. And if you expect them to get on the field, they might actually be a detriment to your team because they're not ready with some of this. And I think that's just a very tangible thing that parents can understand. And if they see it themselves when they're in clinic with their child, might help them to be a little bit more receptive to some of the recommendations regarding, you know, their child not quite being ready to return from that standpoint. And also I think could could give some ideas of activities that the individual could do on their own from, you know, a rehab standpoint to be able to work on some of those deficits. And yeah. I think that's a great point. I think, you know, the the having something objective we can show someone that look, they're not performing this well, that I think resonates better than just kind of discussing stuff. Well, hey, they're having these symptoms, so so we can't let them go back. But you can physically show them, hey, they're not doing well on this. You know, their balance is all over the board, or they're really slow on doing the dual tasks, or they can't walk and talk and chew gum at the same time kind of thing. Interesting. When you were saying all the dual task stuff, the first thing that popped in my head, and and and, and again, the, forgive me for saying this, but you know, I, I'd love to see you compare it to how successful someone is as being able to pat their head and rub their belly at the same time. Is that have any correlation to this? Yeah, yeah. There's, there's certain, <laughs> certainly a lot of ways that you could approach it. And there are like people that do kind of these motor, motor dual tasks where yeah. you have like an upper extremity and a lower extremity movement. I think it just depends on the on the study. And, you know, I think the other thing that, this is why I love working with people that are actually seeing patients, right? Like I was, I used to, I, I guess I'm still an athletic trainer, but I haven't seen a patient in like over 10 years. So, um, <laughs> you know, getting that feedback from, from folks like Dr. Wilson, it's like, Hey, this is the conversation that I'm having. Uh, this is what I think we could roll out in all of our clinics. I think is, is so, so valuable and trying to understand kind of the next steps for that is, you know, what, what do I actually do with this information? Like you said, Mark is, is always kind of in the back of my mind as a researcher. And I think that that's how we work the best as kind of a pediatric research community is in context or in, in conjunction with everybody. Appreciate it, especially with what you said, as far as just for athletic trainers, but also just from a clinical standpoint, you know, if we're wanting pediatricians to do these assessments, we need something that's easy, reproducible and inexpensive to do. A anybody can do the dual task gate in their office. You know, another correlate to that is when people develop the little puck drop test looking for reaction time and mm -hmm. how well that correlated with reaction time on neurocognitive testing. Hey, that's cheap and easy to do. I can do that in the clinic and I don't have to spend 20, 25 minutes and pay for the ever increasing cost of neurocognitive test used in my clinic. And I've got a reaction time assessment that's, that's down and dirty. Mm -hmm. So I love it when people think of these, these things that are, that are simple, practical, easy to do, inexpensive, and they actually show good correlation with other things that we're doing that are the much more uh, fancy, expensive tools. And so I applaud you guys for looking at this, especially, you know, again, looking at it from the clinical standpoint of how this can be practical. Cause I, th I think it's, you know, again, it's helpful for us to have this information. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that the biggest obstacle is is just disseminating. You know, this is a test that every athletic trainer should be able to do regardless of the size of their athletic training facility or their budget. But I would unfortunately surmise that a great percentage of them don't. Either they're perhaps not aware of the test or how to do it. And just some of that dis the dissemination efforts, um, you know, I'm in regards to, you know, the balance error scoring system, I think that took years to really try to get that into 
clinical use and I think it's become widely adopted by a lot of athletic trainers. But these dynamic tasks, I think, you know, are certainly critical, probably give us much more better information regarding our patient status. It's just trying to get them ingrained into, into practice, which is what we need to do. Yeah, that, that takes a, a very long time, I'm, I'm realizing. You know, hey, I just published that last week. How, how come you haven't read that? You know, that kind of thing. It's like, <laughs> I've been working on this for five years, so, or 10 years or whatever it is. And But I was I was also going to say, you know, the other interesting clinical observation with this, but I think this this is kind of universal, is there's the, the quantitative outcome, the time or the cognitive accuracy or whatever. But uh, some of our conversations have revolved around, you know, that concept of, at least in this context, certain patients will prioritize the cognitive test or prioritize the motor task, right? So they, there's a, a trade-off there. And again, that's, that's like, you know, okay, well, what do I do with that information? You know, maybe there's a, a, a prioritization that's happening because there's a deficit. Maybe it's just the person is more comfortable with math than spelling, you know, those kinds of things. And there's a variety of different cognitive tasks that we've developed. I think that we're, we're also working on ways to have this available as like a smartphone app and with some industry partners where you can get a little bit more granular with that information. But again, that there's accessibility issues with that. And, and, you know, I think that everything is kind of a balance of, you know, how objective and how rigorous do you want to be? And so back to, to your point, Mark, of, you know, it's anybody can do it in any clinic. I think it's, it's valuable for that reason alone. So just from a practical standpoint, do you guys, have you ever put out like a little simple video of demonstrating doing the dual task gate? I know that I've shown some in presentations, but I don't know that I've put anything like on through a journal. I know some journals that allow like video abstracts or even like social media or something like that. That's a great idea. That's kind of what I was getting at is yeah, I, I think that would be a great tool. A little video. Yeah. Yeah. If we had some way of just, you know, showing a simple example or just having a link to something on YouTube that, hey, this is how you do the dual task gate assessment doing it like that, just like people put out stuff for VOMs and all that kind of thing. I think that'd be really practical. And I think, you know, obviously those of us that are in the concussion community can certainly disseminate that through social media. And that may be your biggest bang for your buck as far as getting this stuff out there. So maybe something that we need to look into. I think you just uh, figured out what my lab meeting agenda item number one is tomorrow morning. So thank you for that. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. I'll be looking forward to that. Let me know when it's there and we'll get it out. Sounds good. Oh, I'd really like to thank Drs. McLeod and Howell for their insight and expertise today and hashing out these articles. They've been great mentors to me, finally dipping my toes in the water of clinical research. We have some awesome guests coming up these next few months, and I'm excited about this year for the podcast. I truly appreciate you listening in and for leaving your feedback and your five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts. Be sure to check out our entire podcast library and other research review episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.